Okay, story time. So when I was in my, I don't know, mid-20s, I had to go in for a procedure called a colposcopy. Now, a lot of people get this confused with colonoscopy. They're actually two very separate (laughs) procedures. A colonoscopy goes in your colon, your colon's, you know, in your abdomen. A colposcopy is when they're looking at your cervix. And this is something that happens when women have an irregular or an abnormal pap smear. So I was really, really anxious. And I go in for the procedure. And as I'm there, I'm telling the doctor at the time that I'm interested in gynecology. And so she completes the procedure and I'm kind of feeling like just, oh, I kind of want to get off this table. I'm not feeling so great. And she's like, do you want to see your tissue? And she holds it up and shakes it above like where I'm laying and I just pass right out. It was pretty embarrassing. Today's episode, we're going to talk all about pap smears. I'm going to answer your most common questions and it's going to be hopefully very informative. So let's go ahead and get right into it. Hi, and welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. Guys, thank you so much for tuning into my podcast. It really means the world to me. You have to understand, I started this podcast in 2018 after my son was born and I started podcasting in my basement. And it is so cool to see this community and this podcast grow. I had someone message me the other day and I messaged her back and she said, you know, oh, I'm fangirling that you've messaged me back. And you guys don't know this, but I fangirl over your messages to me. In fact, every time I get a message, I show my husband and I just, I get a big smile on my face because a lot of times when you're podcasting, you're you're talking to yourself in a room. It feels a little bit like a vacuum and then it just goes out into the world. So to hear that feedback that these podcasts are inspiring or that they're helping you or that you're learning from them or simply just that they're funny, it really actually means the world to me. I wanted to take a minute and give a shout out for reviews on my podcast that I got this last week. So Ellie17163, she writes, Dr. Hearst is intelligent and seems genuine and explains complicated women's health concepts in an easy to understand fashion. I'm 21. And while what sometimes what she discusses is not directly applied to me, I find the information educational and I hope to become a PA someday. Good luck, Ellie. Thank you so much for your your comment on, on iTunes. I hope you do become a physician assistant. Going into healthcare is such a wonderful field and we desperately need women to uh, and men to go into women's health. There's a lot of room for you and I can't wait to see you there in a few years. Casper Daughter writes, just listen to the UTI talk. She seems approachable and friendly. I wanted to be in that living room with the two of them. And that was me and my very good friend, Elizabeth Ferry, who we did the UTI podcast together. If you haven't heard that one, it is really funny. Go ahead and check it out. Thank you guys so much. Every time you get these, you guys, I feel like just a sense of excitement. Like I fangirl over getting these types of messages. Really, really, I do. 
So today we're going to be doing a solo cast. That's just me talking. So, and I wanted to talk about pap smears. It is something that is, can be really complicated and confusing for people not in the medical community or not in medicine, And for us doctors, it seems more straightforward. And so lots of times there is trouble with the communication from the providers to the patient when the patient feels extremely scared about what it means to have an abnormal pap smear. And the doctor's just kind of like, yeah, 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 you'll be fine. So I want to get into all of that today and break down all of the mystery and the mystique around pap smears. Okay, so most of you guys may know, but I'm sort of in my mid to late 30s, and so a lot has changed about pap smear guidelines in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. Specifically, what physicians and clinicians are now recommending is doing less screening overall than more screening. And so wherein lies the confusion is that a lot of women who maybe are my age or older have been used to this like yearly pap smear, which is, we're going to talk about why that's unnecessary in, in all honesty, but this yearly pap smear where you're going every single year to see your gynecologist just to swab your cervix. And we have scaled back on those recommendations to really space them out over every three to five years, which completely baffles a lot of people, especially when we're talking about something like preventing cancer, in this case, cervical cancer. So the reason we do a pap smear where we put that speculum in in the vaginal tissue and swab that cervix is to make sure a woman doesn't develop cervical cancer. Let's go way back in the history and think about cervical cancers. And when I mean way back, I'm talking like the this 1970s. So one of the things that has helped in all cancers, but one of the things that's helped to decrease mortality and death rates from cervical cancer is the use of screening, specifically the pap smear. When the pap smear is obtained by your gynecologist or your doctor in general, what they're doing is they're taking a little bit of that tiny tissue, it's a microscopic, and they're putting it in this solution. And then they get sent off to the pathology department. And the pathologist is a physician who essentially looks at things under the microscope and gives the clinicians who are seeing the patients and doing clinical care the exact diagnosis based on you know the microscopic findings. When the pathologist is looking at that sample, they're looking for two two things. First, they're looking at something called the cytology. And cytology is a fancy word for they're just looking to see if the cells look normal, cancerous, or abnormal. And for the purposes of this podcast, I think I'm going to kind of just leave it at those three big buckets. Your cells can either look completely normal, they can be cancerous cells, or they can just be in this big bucket in the middle, which is just they consider abnormal. The other thing that they're doing, if the clinician, the one seeing you in the office has ordered something called an HPV, is they're also going to check for the absence or presence of the HPV virus. The HPV virus, its full term is the human papilloma virus. The human papilloma virus is the primary reason, the big cause of cervical cancer. This virus is transmitted through intercourse and it is the most common, I guess you could call it, if you call it sexually transmitted infection, it is more common than any of the other sexually transmitted infections you can think of, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, HIV, hepatitis. HPV is so prevalent that they, the CDC estimates that 
50% of women at some point get HPV. And I say at some point because it regresses, it kind of like goes away. We'll talk about that in a second. And those are probably an underestimate. I learned, I believe in medical school, that even if you've had one sexual partner, your chances of having HPV are really high, unless both of you have never been sexually active before. Okay, so let's review. When you get your pap test, the pathologist who is getting that sample is looking at two things. One, the cytology, what the cells look like in the microscope, and that can be either normal, abnormal, or cancerous. And if the doctor has ordered an HPV screen, either the plus sign or the minus sign, the presence or absence of the HPV, the human papilloma virus. Now, I mentioned that nearly uh, half of us, if not more of us, have positive HPV at some point, but very few people nowadays are actually dying or passing away from cervical cancer. And so you might be thinking like, if half of us get it, why are you telling me, Dr. Hirsch, that you're spreading out the screening guidelines? And that's because of something I just mentioned a little bit ago that HPV, HPV often regresses. So what that means is the virus sort of gets into your cells and infects into little layers like the the DNA, the RNA actually. But over time, it can really go to sleep. Kind of like, but not exactly, but kind of like if you've ever had the chicken pox, you get the chicken pox and that virus stays with you forever. Uh, but it pretty much goes to sleep and doesn't really bother you for the rest of your life unless you get something called uh, shingles, but I don't want to get too deep into that. We'll do another podcast on that, but kind of the same idea. A lot of time HPV regresses and it never goes on to bother you, but for some people HPV is prevalent and along with either risk factors or never getting screening and never getting tested, then it can go on to cause cervical cancer. So what used to happen like in the 70s and 80s is women would have, especially young women, would have a yearly pap smear and would always come back with HPV. And then the doctors would say, well, we got to do something. And so then women would be subjected to a lot of further procedures and further testing. But over time, we really realized that 20 or 30 years later, those 20 year olds that you were doing a lot of repeated pap smears or colposcopies on, that HPV never went on to cause any problems. And so we're probably doing more harm in terms of anxiety and procedures and just essentially, you know, kind of uh, manipulating, if you will, the cervix. And so actually, since most of it's going to regress and most of it's going to go away, it actually makes more sense to space out the testing to see if you're that small percentage of, of woman who is going to have persistent HPV that's going to go on to cause problems. And the reason actually we have much, much less cancer is combined with what we now know and the persistent screening that we do, that typically is what's going to help people keep that cancer away, essentially. Now, I jotted down some really interesting statistics, especially if you're interested in global health or you want to know what's happening worldwide, because this is definitely more of a health concern in third world countries or countries where healthcare is not as easily obtained as it is here in the United States. So in the United States, first and foremost, back in uh, 1975, there was data from the CDC, the Center of Disease and Control website, that showed about 14 or 15 women out of 100,000 were diagnosed with full-blown cervical cancer, which is the end-stage result of persistent HPV for many years, never being treated. 
In 2011, that number dropped a lot to about six to seven women out of 100,000 having the diagnosis of cervical cancer. And then in 2011, that same year, the mortality or the death rate dropped to about two or three women out of 100,000. Now, let's compare that to worldwide. Worldwide, a half a million women are diagnosed with cervical cancer, and a quarter of a million women will die from cervical cancer. So while I wouldn't call myself an expert in cervical cancer, there are many people, and this is actually really a global health issue, you can definitely see how implementing um, access to care, implementing sc- good screening, um, bringing in awareness for pap smears has really tremendously decreased not only the rates of women diagnosed or the prevalence of cervical cancer, but the end result or mortality from cervical cancer in the United States. Okay, now that we've talked about the world, let's talk about you. So what is the actual schedule of pap smears now? So it used to be that your doctor would start doing a pap smear after you've become sexually active. And what did we just say? What are your chances of getting HPV? Pretty freaking high. So now in is 2020, we do not perform pap smears unless you are age 21. And that is just because we don't want to deal with what we consider, again, false positives or just results that are way too early to know if it's going to be a persistent problem that's going to go on to actually harm you or something that's just never going to bother you. So in 2020, we do not perform a pap smear unless you are age 21. Now, a question I get a lot from some of my patients who are you know, 21 or in their early 20s is they'll say, Dr. Hirsch, I've never been sexually active. Should I get a pap smear? So this is how I actually, this is how I personally have dealt with this question. I usually say the guidelines are to start at age 21. If you are, you know, 100% honest that you've never been sexually active, and I tend to believe my patients, but if you're, you know, if you've never been sexually active, absolutely, yeah. Your, your chance of having HPV is zero. You've never been sexually active and we get it from sexual activity. So, okay, no, I'm going to go to bed at night, not worrying about you. The guidelines do say 21 just because sometimes patients aren't always truthful, right? And that's not to say that I, I don't believe you. It's just that, you know, sometimes we're either embarrassed or there's religious reasons or there's cultural reasons or there's shame. And so a, a good doctor kind of always wants to make sure that her patient is healthy. At the same time, I'll say to my, some of my patients who have never been sexually active before, I'll say, you know, it is actually a really good time to think about it and to do the pap smear and to do, because we're also doing a pelvic exam at the same time. It's not just all about your cervix. We can look at the labia. We can look at the muscle. We can look at the vagina. We can look at the tissue. We can see if you have any pain with insertion. We can just really just check your overall pelvic health. You can kind of walk through what the procedure is like. And then you kind of know, and the mystery about having a pelvic exam or a pap smear is gone. But if you've not been sexually active, you, you know, your chances of having HPV are essentially zero. 
it ends up being a huge relief for a lot of my patients who have never been sexually active to, especially if you have a positive experience, I know not all of my women will, but if you have a positive experience with your first pelvic exam or first pelvic, your first pap smear, it can really take that, you know, mystery about it or that fear about it away because it's really actually pretty benign, especially again, if you've got someone who's really skilled with doing pap smears and walking you through them. Okay, so summary time. Pap smears do not start until age 21. Say it with me, age 21. And then what we recommend for our 21 to 29-year-olds is a pap smear every three years, and your doctor is only going to check the cytology. Remember we said there's a, the, the pathologist checks for two things, cytology and presence and absence of HPV. Because 21 to 29-year-olds, especially if that's the time you often become sexually active, we don't actually want to know if you have HPV because you probably do. And we only want to check the cytology at this point because, again, I'm kind of repeating myself, something that I always tell my mom she does and I'm doing the same thing. But Again, we only want to see if your cells are normal or abnormal because we suspect for a majority, like a big majority of women that if they have HPV, it's going to regress and go away. So from age 21 to 29, we only check your cytology, what the cells actually look like. We oftentimes at academic institutions will will order what we call a reflex HPV, which means that only if you have cells that look abnormal, will they check for the presence or absence of HPV. Now, if you're 21 to 29 and every three years you have a normal cytology, you don't need a pap smear unless it's been three years and from 21 to 29. Now, what happens, let's take this common scenario of a 24-year-old who gets a pap smear and her cytology is abnormal, which means her cells look abnormal and it's a huge broad category. I mean, that abnormal category also has a huge range. You will typically get what's called the reflex HPV if your doctor has ordered that, and then they will check for the presence or absence of HPV. From there, we do have an algorithm that your doctor will follow that comes from the American Society of Colposcopy and Cervical Pathology. That algorithm determines if you should have either a repeat pap smear in six months or 12 months, or go on to something called colposcopy, which we're going to decide upon in the end. So if you do have abnormal cells at one point or another, instead of going on just what I'm considering or calling the normal trajectory, you're going to follow a specific algorithm based on then the presence or absence of HPV. At that point, that's when your doctor is really going to be the most important uh, person with you in, in this, in your cervical journey, to help decide at what time you should have repeat testing or go on to have a colposcopy. Let's say you've gotten to age 29 and you've had your pap smears. Every three years, you've had normal uh, cytologies. Now, all of a sudden, you turn 30. Happy 30th birthday. What we recommend between age 30 and 65 is actually, again, increasing the interval in between pap smears even further to every five years. But at this time, at this point, you are going to get a cytology plus an HPV test. So every 
five years, you get your cytology looked at, how your cells look, and the presence or absence of HPV. And the same sort of algorithm or, or slightly different happens in, in this age group. So if you have, you know, it's different if your cytology is normal, but your HPV is positive or your cytology is abnormal and your HPV is negative or your cytology is abnormal and your HPV is positive. It really kind of all depends. I use, which you can also download, I think there's a patient one and there's one that a lot of my clinician colleagues use and I recommend for uh, my residents in my training is the ASCCP app. And it makes it so easy to follow the algorithm. You just get the app and then you, you know, type in the patient's age, you type in the cytology, you type in the HPV, positive or negative, and then it kind of spits out and tells you, you know, do you do a repeat pap test or go do you go on to do a colposcopy after the colposcopy based on the results, then what do you do? And so if you do have an abnormal screening, you do sort of have to jump off the, you know, every five-year testing and follow that algorithm. And again, those screening those extra steps, those colposcopies are the the big reason we've decreased, you know, cervical cancer prevalence in the United States because we've been able to really keep the tissue healthy by doing all this screening. So really, luckily, if you're following your doctor's guidelines, you, you should be doing all of this, you know, with the end result of not never having to have a diagnosis of full-blown cervical cancer. So let's talk about what the heck is a colposcopy and why do you need one? So a colposcopy is something that's recommended based on that algorithm, based on the combination of your age, your pap smear cytology, the presence or minus of HPV, and we also factor in if you're pregnant or not. Let's just leave that out for now just to make matters a little bit easier. A colposcopy is essentially a procedure where we use a colposcope to, which is essentially a microscope, to look at your cervix up close. Now, if you've ever had a pap smear or if you haven't, it's kind of a really quick swab. It's like a quick screening test. No one's actually looking directly at your cervix. You know, your cervix is down the tunnel of your vagina, which can be anywhere to, you know, a couple centimeters in length, and you know, it's dark in there. So a colposcopy, they're really going to put the lights on. The doctor's going to put a certain, a little bit of like staining, I guess, or a, a, a liquid on your cervix that is going to allow the clinician with the use of that microscope to see, to see really up close with their eyes that there's tissue that looks abnormal. And from a clinician standpoint, this, you know, is definitely something that you, if you're going to be doing colposcopies, if you're going into GYN or if you're an internist or family medicine doctor and you're doing more rural medicine and you're going to be doing colposcopies, it's definitely going to be a lot of experience. Um, a lot of physicians will go on to do testing with ASCCP and become certified because there's definitely certain types of cervical pathologies. And so you as the patient, or you, you don't need to know what it looks like, but it will look, you know, abnormal to your doctor's eye, and then they may go on to do a biopsy. So the worst part of a colposcopy is kind of when you're just sitting there and they're looking at the cervix with a microscope because it can be really awkward. The biopsy can often be uncomfortable. It feels like a little pinch or like a really uncomfortable pap smear. And then sometimes the doctor will also do a biopsy of the endocervical canal. So if the cervix is kind of like a, 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 a bullseye, a target, it's that right in the middle. They're going to also take a little bit of tissue from the endocervical canal because that can also be an area where, to, where t tissue can become unhealthy or abnormal. So 
Your doctor is going to get those results and send those to the pathologist who's going to look at those under the microscope. And then they're going to either report back if those are pretty normal and or if those look like CIN 1, 2, or 3. CIN stands for cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. It's a fancy word for pre-cancer. Uh, very rarely it will come back as cancerous as well. Remember, overall, cancer cervical cancer diagnosis is relatively low if you have been doing your pap smears and getting routine care all along. Okay, Heather Hirsch, summary time. No pap smears until age 21. From 21 to 29, you should be getting pap smears every three years if they're normal, and your doctor should be checking just the cytology only with a reflux HPV, which means they only check the HPV if the cytology is abnormal. If you have an abnormal cytology, then you will follow a different algorithm, but overall, most HPV regresses, and so we want to actually increase the intervals between screening you and we want to do less to you so we overall actually harm you less and watch this over time once you are age 30 from 30 to 65 we recommend pap smears every five years and we check your cytology and this time we check hpv and that makes sense because we want to see now in your 30s and 40s if that hpv is persistent and we only do a procedure or a colposcopy if there's something abnormal in any of those pap smears. Now, yes, you can actually stop pap cervical screening at age 65, particularly if you've had, it used to be three, but if you've had, you know, many normal pap smears leading up to age 65, we do not recommend screening after age 65. That is just because it's really deemed that your HPV is regressed, is gone, and is not going to come back to get you. And most likely, since we all leave this earth one day, something else will be the cause of your end of your beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous life and not cervical cancer. Similarly, this question I get asked all the time is if you have had a hysterectomy where your uterus is removed, don't care about the ovaries, they can remove them, they can keep them. But if you've had your uterus removed and they've removed your cervix, which is why I always, always advocate for you to understand exactly what's being removed, but oftentimes they do. If your cervix is gone, guess what, ladies? You do not need need a pap smear ever again. It's really hard to get cervical cancer when your cervix is gone. The caveat to this is if you had a hysterectomy or your uterus removed for cervical cancer, then obviously you're already in the cancer group and it's going to be a different story. But if you have a routine hysterectomy and your cervix is removed with your uterus, you're simply just not going to get cervical cancer because it's gone and it's in a bag somewhere. So you do not need pap smears after that. If you are getting pap smears after that routinely, this is honestly, in my in my opinion, malpractice. This is a physician billing you for a service that you do not need. So you should not be having pap smears after age 65 if your pap smears are normal and you should not be having pap smears if you've had a hysterectomy, point blank. Now, these are just the guidelines for 2020. They might change this interval, this frequency. Again, it kind of used to be every year or it seemed like it was every year. And now we've really increased these frequencies uh, very much. I have some patients who from the bottom of their heart have severe anxiety about going that long. And remember, not that long ago when they used to get a lot more pap smears and a lot more testing and may know somebody who had certain types of cancers. If someone says to me, I 
really, really cannot sleep at night without a pap smear, you know what? That's absolutely fine. I can truly do a pap smear. I just like to educate you on why we have changed the guidelines and why we can increase the screening intervals safely. But if you really, really want a pap smear, I'm never going to tell you no and walk out of the room. You're absolutely welcome to have a pap smear. Another thing is that a lot of women have it, but at pelvic exams where your doctor is assessing the labia, the vulva, the perineum, the tone, and they're not actually swabbing your cervix. So a lot of people think they used to get pap smears all the time when actually they were just having a pelvic exam. So again, it's always helpful to know if you're having just a pelvic exam or if you're actually having a cervical cancer screening test, your pap smear. It's also a good time to just let you know for both my women listening to this and my um, clinicians listening to this, that there are some risk factors women can have that can increase the risk for cervical cancer. And these risk factors most likely relate to getting that HPV virus a lot longer lifespan, a happier life. Essentially, instead of regressing, the HPV sticks with you with a vengeance. And the risk factors that we know of right now are also having HIV, which is the virus that goes on to cause AIDS. And then the other risk factors that can sort of help that HPV virus, we know are smoking, having had more than three children, having had several partners. And there's some data to say that birth control pills usage for over five years can be associated with increased risk of cervical cancer, but I would not let that sway you from staying under birth control pills. Lots of information. I want to close this episode by briefly talking about the HPV vaccine, which you've probably heard about, which is Gardasil. I'm not a expert in immunology and vaccines, but again, great point to touch on the vaccine. Of course, the idea behind the vaccine was to stop the virus that causes cervical cancer. So eventually, you know, in a in a in a beautiful, perfect world, we could eradicate cervical cancer by just getting rid of the virus. So for what we have right now on the market is Gardasil, which is a nine valent vaccine that is started in men and women or boys and girls around a recommended age of around 11 to 12. Earliest you can do it is nine up to age 26. It is a two or three series vaccine. I think they're realizing that, you know, with actually two doses of the vaccine, it's fairly effective. It should be given about every six to 12 months or six to 12 months apart. And yes, we do want to vaccinate boys and girls. Men can also get HPV more prevalent in like head and neck cancers, as well as, of course, they're transmitting the virus. So it makes sense for herd immunity to vaccine both boys and girls. Now you can now, it used to be at 26 was sort of the age limit. Now you can still consider and get the Gardasil vaccine between ages 27 and 45. It's sort of now approved and you can get it. It's just that most if, if women have been exposed to the HPV virus at that point. And the vaccine does not you know, help you if you've already kind of had past exposure. It's not going to like treat the virus. It is just going to prevent you from, if you've never seen it, from hopefully having, you know, a persistent virus if, if it's new to you 
after you've had the vaccine. So there's somewhat sort of less efficacy if you've already been sexually active, but that does not mean you can still not get Gardasil between the ages now up to 27, up to 45. We don't give it if you're pregnant as probably safe, but again, we just don't recommend using it in pregnancy. And if you are immunocompromised, then we recommend giving you the full three doses instead of two. So that's just a little bit about the Gardasil vaccine, just for you guys to know and have that information. So I think we've covered a ton today about just cervical pathology in general. I hope you guys found that to be helpful. Please leave any comments or questions below because again, when I started this podcast, I think one of the barriers of communication sits because clinicians understand this and even though it's kind of complex and I don't think we do a great job of transmitting this into what this means to patients because it's very anxiety provoking to know you have a virus in your cervix that was sexually transmitted and now you need a procedure with a microscope, right? So I want to make sure I can bridge that gap for you as best as I can. Thank you guys for listening in. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, I'm at hormone.health.doc. If you want, you can also follow me on Twitter. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD. And I also started a YouTube channel. So I put videos up there mostly about menopause and perimenopause and hormones. But if you are of that age group, or if you have early menopause, not all menopause, is created equal. So it's a really, really fun channel. So you can go ahead and you can watch me there. I thank you guys so much for your comments. Really. Thank you. Thank you. If you drop a comment, hopefully I'll be able to read it on the next podcast. Thank you guys. Stay safe, stay well, and stay informed.